Section 18 of Starlight Ranch and Other Stories of Army Life on the Frontier by Charles King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story 4 The Worst Man in the Troop, Part 1. Just why that young Irishman should have been so balefully branded was more than the first lieutenant of the troop could understand. To be sure, the lieutenant's opportunities for observation had been limited. He had spent some years on detached service in the East, and had joined his comrades in Arizona but a fortnight ago, and here he was already becoming rapidly initiated in the science of scouting through mountain wilds against the wariest and most treacherous of foemen, the Apaches of our southwestern territory coming as he had done direct from a station and duties where full-dress uniform lavish expenditure for kid gloves bouquets and lubin's extracts were matters of daily fact it must be admitted that the sensations he experienced on seeing his detachment equipped for the scout were those of mild consternation that much latitude as to individual dress and equipment was permitted he had previously been informed that full dress and white shirts collars and the like would be left at home he had sense enough to know but that every officer and man in the command would be allowed to discard any and all portions of the regulation uniform and appear rigged out in just such motley guise as his poetic or practical fancy might suggest had never been pointed out to him and that he commanding his troop while a captain commanded the little battalion could by any military possibility take his place in front of his men without his sabre had never for an instant occurred to him as a consequence when he bolted into the mess-room shortly after daybreak on a bright june morning with that imposing but at most times useless item of cavalry equipment clanking at his heels the lieutenant gazed with some astonishment upon the attire of his brother officers there assembled, but found himself the butt of much good-natured and not over-witty chaff, directed partially at the extreme newness and neatness of his dark-blue flannel scouting-shirt and high-top boots, but more especially at the glittering sabre swinging from his waist-belt. "'Billings,' said Captain Buxton, with much solemnity, while you have probably learned through the columns of a horror-stricken eastern press that we scalp alive or dead all unfortunates who fall into our clutches i assure you that even for that purpose the cavalry sabre has in arizona at least outlived its usefulness it is too long and clumsy you see what you really want for the purpose is something like this and he whipped out of its sheath a rusty but keen-bladed Mexican cujillo, something you can wield with a deft turn of the wrist, you know. The sabre is apt to tear and mutilate the flesh, especially when you use both hands. And Captain Buxton winked at the other subaltern and felt that he had said a good thing. But Mr. Billings was a man of considerable good nature, and readily adaptable to the society or circumstances by which he might be surrounded chaff was a very cheap order of wit 
and the serenity of his disposition enabled him to shake off its effect as readily as water is scattered from the plumage of the duck. "'So you don't wear the sabre on a scout?' "'So much the better. I have my revolvers and a sharps carbine, but am destitute of anything in the knife-line.' And with that Mr. Billings betook himself to the duty of dispatching the breakfast that was already spread before him in an array tempting enough to a frontier appetite, but little designed to attract a bon vivant of civilization. Bacon, frijoles, and creamless coffee speedily become ambrosia and nectar, under the influence of mountain air and mountain exercise but Mr. Billings had as yet done no climbing. A buckboard ride had been his means of transportation to the garrison, a lonely four-company post in a faraway valley in northeastern Arizona, and in the three or four days of intense heat that had succeeded his arrival, exercise of any kind had been out of the question. It was with no especial regret, therefore, that he heard the summons of the captain, "'Hurry up, man, we must be off in ten minutes,' and in less than ten minutes the lieutenant was on his horse and superintending the formation of his troop. If Mr. Billings was astonished at the garb of his brother officers at breakfast, he was simply aghast when he glanced along the line of Company A, as his command was at that time officially designated, and the first sergeant rode out to report his men present or accounted for. The first sergeant himself was got up in an old grey flannel shirt, open at and disclosing a broad brown throat and neck. His head was crowned with what had once been a white felt sombrero, now tanned by desert sun, wind, and dirt into a dingy mud-colour. His powerful legs were encased in worn deerskin breeches, tucked into low-topped, broad-soled, well-greased boots. His waist was girt with a rude thimble-belt, in the loops of which were thrust scores of copper cartridges for carbine and pistol. His carbine, and those of all the command, swung in a leather loop athwart the pommel of the saddle. Revolvers in all manner of cases hung at the hip, the regulation holster in most instances being conspicuous by its absence. Indeed, throughout the entire command, the remarkable fact was to be noted that a company of regular cavalry, taking the field against hostile Indians, had discarded pretty much every item of dress or equipment prescribed or furnished by the authorities of the United States, and had supplied themselves with an outfit utterly ununiform, unpicturesque, undeniably slouchy, but not less undeniably appropriate and serviceable. Not a forage cap was to be seen, not a campaign hat of the style then prescribed by a board of officers that might have known something of hats, but never could have had an idea on the subject of campaigns. Fancy that black enormity of weighty felt, with flapping brim well nigh a foot in width, absorbing the fiery heat of an Arizona sun and concentrating the burning rays upon the cranium of its unhappy wearer. No such headgear would our troopers suffer in the days when General Cook led them through the canyons and deserts of that inhospitable territory. Regardless of appearances or style himself, seeking only comfort in his dress, 
the chief speedily found means to indicate that, in Apache campaigning at least, it was to be a case of inter arma silent leges, in dead earnest. For, freely translated, the old saw read, No red tape when Indian fighting. Of much of this, Lieutenant Billings was only partially informed, and so, as has been said, he was aghast when he marked the utter absence of uniform and the decidedly variegated appearance of his troop. Deerskin, buckskin, canvas, and flannels, leggings, moccasins, and the like, constituted the bill of dress, and old, soft felt hats, originally white, the headgear. If spurs were worn at all, they were of the Mexican variety, easy to kick off, but sure to stay on when wanted. Only two men wore carbine sling belts, and Mr. Billings was almost ready to hunt up his captain and inquire if by any possibility the men could be attempting to put up a joke on him, when the captain himself appeared, looking little, if any more, like the ideal soldier than his men, and the perfectly satisfied expression on his face as he rode easily around, examining closely the horses of the command, paying a special attention to their feet and the shoes thereof, convinced the lieutenant that all was as it was expected to be, if not as it should be, and he swallowed his surprise and held his peace. Another moment, and Captain Wayne's troop came filing past in columns of twos, looking, if anything, rougher than his own. "'You follow right after Wayne,' said Captain Buxton, and, with no further formality, Mr. Billings, in a perfunctory sort of way, wheeled his men to the right by fours, broke into column of twos, and closed up on the leading troop. Buxton was in high glee on this particular morning in June. He had done very little Indian scouting, had been but moderately successful in what he had undertaken, and now, as luck would have it, the necessity arose for sending something more formidable than a mere detachment down into the Tonto Basin in search of a powerful band of Apaches who had broken loose from the reservation and were taking refuge in the foothills of the Black Mesa, or among the wilds of the Sierra Anca. As senior captain of the two, Buxton became commander of the entire force, two well-filled troops of regular cavalry, some thirty Indian allies as scouts, and a goodly-sized train of pack-mules, with its full complement of packers, cargadors, and blacksmiths. He fully anticipated a lively fight, possibly a series of them, and a triumphant return to his post, where hereafter he would be looked up to and quoted as an expert and authority on Apache fighting. He knew just where the hostiles lay, and was going straight to the point to flatten them out forthwith. And so the little command moved off under admirable auspices, and in the best of spirits. It was a four days' hard march to the locality where Captain Buxton counted on finding his victims, and when on the fourth day, rather tired and not particularly enthusiastic, the command bivouacked along the banks of a mountain torrent, a safe distance from the supposed location of the Indian stronghold, he sent forward his Apache Mojave allies to make a stealthy reconnaissance, feeling confident that soon after nightfall they would return, 
with the intelligence that the enemy were lazily resting in their rancheria all unsuspicious of his approach and that at daybreak he would pounce upon and annihilate them soon after nightfall the scouts did return but their intelligence was not so gratifying a small a very small band of renegades had been encamped in that vicinity some weeks before but not a hostel or sign of a hostel was to be found captain buxton hardly slept that night from disappointment and mortification and when he went the following day to investigate for himself he found that he had been on a false scent from the start and this made him crabbed a week's hunt through the mountains resulted in no better luck and now having had only fifteen days rations at the outset he was most reluctantly and savagely marching homeward to report his failure but mr billings had enjoyed the entire trip sleeping in the open air without other shelter than their blankets afforded scouting by day in single file over miles of mere game trails up hill and down dale through the wildest and most dolefully picturesque scenery he had at least ever beheld under frowning cliffs and beetling crags through dense forests of pine and juniper through mountain torrents swollen with the melting snows of the crests so far above them through canyons deep dark and gloomy searching ever for traces of the foe they were ordered to find and fight forthwith mr billings and his men having no responsibility upon their shoulders were happy and healthy as possible and consequently in small sympathy with their irate leader every afternoon when they halted beside some one of the hundreds of mountain brooks that came tumbling down from the gorges of the black mesa the men were required to look carefully at the horses' backs and feet, for a mountain Arizona is terrible on shoes, equine, or human. This had to be done before the herds were turned out to graze with their guard around them, and often some of the men would get a wisp of straw or a suitable wipe of some kind and thoroughly rub down their steeds. Strolling out among them, as he always did at this time, our lieutenant had noticed a slim but trimly built young irishman whose care of and devotion to his horse it did him good to see no matter how long the march how severe the fatigue that horse was always looked after his grazing ground preempted by a deftly thrown picket pin and lariat which secured to him all the real estate that could be surveyed within the circle of which the pen was the centre and the lariat the radius vector. Between horse and master the closest comradeship seemed to exist. The trooper had a way of softly singing or talking to his friend as he rubbed him down, and Mr. Billings was struck with the expression and taste with which the little soldier, for he was only five feet five, would render molly bown and kitty tyrrell except when thus singing or exchanging confidences with his steed he was strangely silent and reserved he ate his rations among the other men yet rarely spoke with them and he would ride all day through country marvellous for wild beauty and be the only man in the command who did not allow himself to give vent to some expression of astonishment or delight what is that man's name asked mr billings of the first sergeant one evening o'grady sir replied the sergeant with his soldierly salute 
and a little later, as Captain Buxton was fretfully complaining to his subaltern of the ill fortune that seemed to overshadow his best efforts, the latter, thinking to cheer him and to divert his attention from his trouble, referred to the troop. "'Why, Captain, I don't think I ever saw a finer set of men than you have, anywhere. Now, there's a little fellow who strikes me as being a perfect light cavalry soldier.' and the lieutenant indicated his young Irishman. "'You don't mean O'Grady?' asked the captain in surprise. "'Yes, sir, the very one. Why, he's the worst man in the troop.' For a moment Mr. Billings knew not what to say. His captain had spoken with absolute harshness and dislike in his tone of the one soldier of all others who seemed to be the most quiet, attentive, and alert of the troop. He had noticed, too, that the sergeants and the men generally, in speaking to O'Grady, were wont to fall into a kindlier tone than usual, and though they sometimes squabbled among themselves over the choice of patches of grass for their horses, O'Grady's claim was never questioned, much less jumped. Respect for his superior's rank would not permit the lieutenant to argue the matter, but desiring to know more about the case, he spoke again. "'I am very sorry to hear it. His care of his horse and his quiet ways impressed me so favorably.' "'Oh, yes, damn him!' broke in Captain Buxton. "'Horses and whiskey are the only things on earth he cares for. As to quiet ways, there isn't a worse devil at large than O'Grady with a few drinks in him. When I came back from two years' recruiting detail, he was a sergeant in the troop. I never knew him before, but I soon found he was addicted to drink, and after a while had to break him. And one night, when he was raising hell in the quarters, and I ordered him into the dark cell, he turned on me like a tiger. By Jove, if it hadn't been for some of the men, he would have killed me, or I him. He was tried by court-martial, but most of the detail was made up of infantrymen and staff officers from Crook's headquarters, and by blank they didn't seem to think it any sin for a soldier to threaten to cut his captain's heart out, and Crook himself gave me a sort of a rap in his remarks on the case, and, well, they just let O'Grady off scot-free between them, gave him some little fine, and did more harm than good. He's just as surly and insolent now when I speak to him as he was that night when drunk. Here, I'll show you. And with that Captain Buxton started off towards the herd, Mr. Billings obediently following, but feeling vaguely ill at ease. He had never met Captain Buxton before, but letters from his comrades had prepared him for experiences not altogether pleasant. A good soldier in some respects, Captain Buxton bore the reputation of having an almost ungovernable temper, of being at times brutally violent in his language and conduct towards his men, and, worse yet, of bearing ill-concealed malice and nursing his wrath to keep it warm against such of his enlisted men as had ever ventured to appeal for justice. The captain stopped on reaching the outskirts of the quietly grazing herd. "'Corporal,' said he to the non-commissioned officer in charge, "'isn't that O'Grady's horse off there to the left?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Go and tell O'Grady to come here.' 
The corporal saluted and went off on his errand. "Now, Mr. Billings," said the captain, "I have repeatedly given orders that my horses must be side lined when we are in the hostile country. Just come here to the left." And he walked over towards a handsome, sturdy little California horse of a bright bay color. "Here, you see, is O'Grady's horse, and not a side line. That's his way of obeying orders. More than that, he is never content to have his horse in among the others, but must always get away outside, just where he is most apt to be run off by any Indian sharp and quick enough to dare it. Now, here comes O'Grady. Watch him if you want to see him in his true light. Standing beside his superior, Mr. Billings looked towards the approaching trooper, who with a quick springy step advanced to within a few yards of them, then stopped short and erect and in silence raised his hand in salute, and with perfectly respectful demeanor looked straight at his captain. In a voice at once harsh and distinctly audible over the entire bivouac, with frowning brow and angry eyes, Buxton demanded, "'Oh, Grady, where are your side-lines?' "'Over with my blankets, sir.' "'Over with your blankets, are they? Why in blank, sir, are they not here on your horse where they ought to be?' And the captain's voice waxed harsher and louder, and his manner more threatening. I understood the captain's orders to be that they need not go on till sunset, replied the soldier, calmly and respectfully, and I don't like to put them on that sore place, sir, until the last moment. Don't like to? No, sir, I know damned well you don't like to obey this or any other order I ever give, and wherever you find a loophole through which to crawl, and you think you can sneak off unpunished, by blank, sir, I suppose you will go on disobeying orders. Shut up, sir, not a damned word. For tears of mortification were starting to O'Grady's eyes, and with flushing face and trembling lip the soldier stood helplessly before his troop commander, and was striving to say a word in further explanation. Go and get your sidelines at once, and bring them here. Go at once, sir, shouted the captain, and with a lump in his throat, the trooper saluted, faced about, and walked away. "'He's milder-mannered than usual, damn him,' said the captain, turning towards his subaltern, who had stood a silent and pained witness of the scene. "'He knows he is in the wrong, and has no excuse, but he'll break out yet.' "'Come, step out, you O'Grady!' he yelled after the rapidly walking soldier. "'Double time, sir! I can't wait here all night!' and Mr. Billings noted that silence had fallen on the bivouac so full of soldier chaff and laughter but a moment before, and that the men of both troops were intently watching the scene already so painful to him. Obediently O'Grady took up the dog-trot required of him, got his side-lines, and, running back, knelt beside his horse and with trembling hands adjusted them, during which performance Captain Buxton stood over him, and in a tone that grew more and more that of a bully, as he lashed himself up into a rage, continued his lecture to the man. The latter finally rose, and with huge beads of perspiration starting out of his forehead, faced his captain. "'May I say a word, sir?' he asked. "'You may now.' 
"'But be damned careful how you say it,' was the reply, with a sneer that would have stung an abject slave into a longing for revenge, and that grated on Mr. Billings's nerves in a way that made him clench his fists and involuntarily grit his teeth. Could it be that O'Grady detected it? One quick, wistful, half-appealing glance flashed from the Irishman's eyes toward the subaltern, and then, with evident effort at composure, but with a voice that trembled with the pent-up sense of wrong and injustice, O'Grady spoke. "'Indeed, sir, I had no thought of neglecting orders. I always care for my horse. But it wasn't sunset when the captain came out.' not sunset broke in buxton with an outburst of profanity not sunset why it's well-nigh dark now sir and every man in the troop had sidelined his horse half an hour ago damn your insolence sir your excuse is worse than your conduct mr billings see to it sir that this man walks and leads his horse in rear of the troop all the way back to the post i'll see by blank whether he can be taught to obey orders. And with that the captain turned and strode away. The lieutenant stood for an instant stunned, simply stunned. Involuntarily he made a step towards O'Grady. Their eyes met, but the restraint of discipline was upon both. In that brief meeting of their glances, however, the trooper read a message that was unmistakable. Lieutenant he said, but stopped abruptly, pointed aloft over the trees to the eastward with his right hand, dashed it across his eyes, and then, with hurried salute and a choking sort of gurgle in his throat, he turned and went back to his comrades. Mr. Billings gazed after the retreating form until it disappeared among the trees by the brookside. Then he turned to see what was the meaning of the soldiers pointing over towards the mesa to the east. Down in the deep valley in which the little command had halted for the night, the pall of darkness had indeed begun to settle. The bivouac fires in the timber threw a lurid glare upon the groups gathering around them for supper, and towards the west the rugged upheavals of the Mazatzo range stood like a black barrier against the glorious hues of a bank of summer cloud. All in the valley spoke of twilight and darkness. The birds were still, the voices of the men subdued. So far as local indications were concerned, it was, as Captain Buxton had insisted, almost dark. But square over the gilded treetops to the east, stretching for miles and miles to their right and left, blazed a vertical wall of rock crested with scrub oak and pine, every boulder, every tree, glittering in the radiant light of the invisibly setting sun. O'Grady had not disobeyed his orders. Noting this, Mr. Billings proceeded to take a leisurely stroll through the peaceful herd, carefully inspecting each horse as he passed. As a result of his scrutiny, he found that, while most of the horses were already encumbered with their annoying hobble, in a troop alone there were at least a dozen still unfettered, notably the mounts of the non-commissioned officers and the older soldiers. Like O'Grady, they did not wish to inflict the sideline upon their steeds until the last moment. 
unlike O'Grady, they had not been called to account for it. When Mr. Billings was summoned to supper, and he rejoined his brother officers, it was remarked that he was more taciturn than usual. After that repast had been appreciatively disposed of, and the little group with lighted pipes prepared to spend an hour in chat and contentment, it was observed that Mr. Billings did not take part in the general talk, but that he soon rose, and out of earshot of the officer's campfire, paced restlessly up and down, with his head bent forward and evidently plunged in thought. By and by the half-dozen broke up and sought their blankets. Captain Buxton, somewhat mollified by a good supper, was about rolling into his Navajo when Mr. Billings stepped up. "'Captain, may I ask for information as to the sideline order? After you left this evening I found that there must be some misunderstanding about it.' "'How so?' said Buxton shortly. "'In this, Captain, and Mr. Billings spoke very calmly and distinctly. The first sergeant, several other non-commissioned officers and men, more than a dozen, I should say, did not sideline their horses until half an hour after you spoke to O'Grady, and the first sergeant assured me, when I called him to account for it, that your orders were that it should be done at sunset. Well, by blank, it was after sunset, at least it was getting mighty dark, when I sent for that blackguard O'Grady, said Buxton impetuously, and there is no excuse for the rest of them. It was beginning to grow dark down in this deep valley, I know, sir, but the treetops were in broad glare of sunlight while we were at the herd and those cliffs for a half an hour longer. "'Well, Mr. Billings, I don't propose to have any hair-splitting in the management of my troop,' said the captain, manifestly nettled. "'It was practically sunset to us when the light began to grow dim, and my men know it well enough.' And with that he rolled over and turned his back to his subaltern. Disregarding the broad hint to leave, Mr. Billings again spoke. Is it your wish, sir, that any punishment should be imposed on the men who were equally in fault with O'Grady? Buxton muttered something unintelligible from under his blankets. I did not understand you, sir, said the lieutenant, very civilly. Buxton savagely propped himself up on one elbow and blurted out, No, Mr. Billings, no! When I want a man punished, I'll give the order myself, sir. And is it still your wish, sir, that I make O'Grady walk the rest of the way? For a moment Buxton hesitated. His better nature struggled to assert itself and induce him to undo the injustice of his order. But the cad in his disposition, the weakness of his character, prevailed. It would never do to let his lieutenant get the upper hand of him, he argued, and so the reply came, and came angrily. Yes, of course. He deserves it anyhow, by blank, and it'll do him good. Without another word, Mr. Billings turned on his heel and left him. The command returned to garrison, shaved its stubbly beard of two weeks' growth, and resumed its uniform and the routine duties of the post. Three days only had it been back when Mr. Billings, marching on as officer of the day, and receiving the prisoners from his predecessor, was startled to hear the list of names wound up with O'Grady, and when that name was called 
There was no response. The old officer of the day looked up inquiringly. "Where is O'Grady, sergeant?" "In the cell, sir, unable to come out." "O'Grady was confined by Captain Buxton's order late last night," said Captain Wayne, "and I fancy the poor fellow has been drinking heavily this time." CHAPTER XIX.